0: Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to NeuroRounds. This is round 13. We're going to start talking about disorders of thought and mood. So uh, psychiatric disorders are categorized into four different groups. disorders of thinking and cognition, which is schizophrenia and delirium. Uh, Disorders of mood, which are affective disorders and anxiety. Uh, Disorders of social behavior, which are character defects and personality disorders. And then disorders of learning, memory, and intelligence. Uh, Mental retardation and dementia are examples of those. But today we're going to start with talking about disorders of thought, specifically schizophrenia. Um, It affects about 1% of the population worldwide. Uh, has a very strong genetic component, with 15% occurrence within families, and then identical twins of uh, 30 to 50% likelihood of getting it. If one twin has it, the other one uh, has a 50% chance of getting it as well. Um, in early 20th century, uh, Eugen Bleuler was uh, Bleuler was one of the first people to start identifying this um, disease. Um, he's called it the splitting of the cognitive side uh, from the emotional side. So that's where they came from schizophrenia. The symptoms that he identified were inappropriate affects, so laughing at a tragic event, hallucinations, which are abnormal perceptions, uh, so internal voice telling you to do things, um, delusions, which are aberrant beliefs, and psychotic episodes, so you can lose your ability to test reality, and you can't examine your thoughts and beliefs realistically. Um, Also you have incoherent thinking, disordered memory, and confusion. Well, um, schizophrenia, the onset is usually preceded by prodromal signs. So you'll have social isolation and withdrawal, um, odd behaviors and ideas, uh, neglect of personal hygiene, and have blunted affect. Then you'll have positive symptoms. So positive, positive symptoms mean the occurrence of something that shouldn't be there. So these are psychotic episodes, delusions, hallucinations, and bizarre, disordered behavior. Then you'll have negative symptoms. Negative symptoms are the absence of something that should be there. Um, so you're socially isolated, poverty of speech, poor attention span, flat affect, and lack of motivation. You also have some cognitive defects, so poor concentration, attention, um, learning and understanding of social cues, and then affective uh, deficits, so inability to show and recognize emotions. So as far as who gets schizophrenia, um, there's a higher than, um, likelihood of getting it is higher if you are, are of African descent. Uh, men, marijuana users, and veterans with PTSD. Um, Also, there's a family history. As I mentioned before, there's a genetic component. Um, Also, low SES, socioeconomic status. Children that grow up in urban environments and um, are exposed to a lot of pollution. Um, Environmental stressors like child abuse, neglect, foster care, um, and domestic violence. Um, Also, um, interestingly, if you're born in late winter or early spring, you're more likely to have schizophrenia if your father was 55 or older when you were conceived, uh, parental smoking, drinking, and substance use, Um, if the mother was exposed to uh, viral pathogens and infections, um, stress or nutrient deficiency when she was pregnant, and then uh, when you're born, if you had hypoxia, low oxygen levels, um, if you had a shorter gestation period, and if you had a low birth weight, you're more likely to have schizophrenia. Um, Schizophrenia is a disorder of neural development, they believe. Um, So what happens is you have enlarged ventricles. So you can see um, this is a schizophrenic brain versus a healthy brain. You see these very large ventricles here. Um, This other figure is of identical twins. Um, The one on the right is the schizophrenic twin and the one on the left is the non-schizophrenic twin. So what you're having is um, enlarged ventricles and reduction of actual brain uh, volume. So some of the regions of the brain that are affected are the temporal lobes. Uh, there's a low density of gray matter, which are the cell bodies. Uh, we talked last week about how normally um, the left temporal lobe is, uh, has more volume than the right side. Um, but for schizophrenic patients, it's switched. So you have such low uh, temporal density that actually the right side is, has more volume than the left. And then if people have auditory hallucinations, they'll have smaller or superior temporal lobes. The frontal lobe is also affected, so um, what you'll find is that these patients have symptoms that look like uh, lobotomy patients, we also discussed last week, um, and they have higher to normal white density actually in the right than in the left, but overall uh, there's a reduced volume of about 6 to 8% in the frontal lobes, um, especially if you have a high level of apathy. Um, those patients have less volume in the frontal lobes. The thalamus, which we've discussed many times before, is kind of the train station of the brain. Everything goes there, and then it gets distributed out to where it needs to go. Uh, In schizophrenic patients, they have reduced volume of 30 to 45%, which is pretty substantial. Um, So the problem is, especially in the medial dorsal nucleus, which has a lot of uh, connections to the prefrontal cortex. So a lot of information is not getting to the prefrontal cortex um, accurately. Also the limbic system, um, which is again emotions and uh, memories So the amygdala hippocampus and parahippocampus have a decreased volume. Uh, specifically in the hippocampus it has it's small it has disorganized neural development so the neurons aren't going where they need to be going. Um, Basal ganglia and cerebellum important for movement. Um, there's cell loss and reduced volume um, that's related to the odd movements and gates of uh, schizophrenic patients. Um, it's also a reduced number of dopamine receptors in the caudate uh, putamen and the nucleus accumbens. So, there's some uh, studies looking at the brain differences between schizophrenic and normal. So, up here, uh, the task was a cognitive task, so it involved working memory. Normals on top, you'll see this kind of large area of activation in the dorsal lateral prefrontal uh, cortex, but in the schizophrenic patient, much less activation. When they're looking at faces, uh, the normal person, if they see a neutral face, will not have that much activation, but the schizophrenic patient has a lot more activation when they see normal, face, uh, neutral faces, but when they see scary or angry faces, um, the normal person, or the non-schizophrenic patient, will have a lot of activation to a scary face, but the schizophrenic patient will have less activation, so their activation to neutral versus emotional faces is inverse of what um, normal people have. So antipsychotic drugs um, are used to treat schizophrenia. Um, They work acutely, so right when you start taking it, and then more and more the longer you take it. Um, They work on dopamine receptors. So the reason why they think that dopamine plays a role in schizophrenia is that drugs that increase dopamine can cause schizophrenic-like symptoms So if you take too much L-DOPA, cocaine, amphetamines, they'll a psychosis. Um, Also the brains of schizophrenic patients at autopsy have been shown to have increased D2 receptors in the amygdala, caudate nucleus, nucleus accumbens, especially for those that had a lot of positive symptoms. Again, those are the things that shouldn't be there, so hallucinations and delusions. So uh, dopamine, as I said, is uh, what they're looking at for the locus here. So there are four different dopamine pathways. The uh, turbo infundibular one originates in the um, arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. So it's the pink one here. And then it goes to the pituitary stalk. Um, they think there's low dopamine in this pathway, and that can lead to um, some secondary neuroendocrine abnormalities. The nigrostriatal, as I talked about before, is important for movement. Um, it originates in the substantia nigra and projects to the putamen and the uh, caudate nucleus and they again think there is low dopamine in that pathway as well, and that's related to abnormal gaits and postures. Um, Also, if you take one side effect of antipsychotic drugs is that you get this tremor kind of muscle rigidity, uh, tardive dyskinesia is related to dopamine in this pathway. We had the mesolimbic. It is a blue one here. It originates in the ventral uh, tegmental area, and goes up to the limbic system. Uh, Obviously, it plays a role in motivation pleasure and reward, and they think on this one, there's too much dopamine. So the last two, there was too little, but this one, there's too much. And this is related to the positive symptoms, so it has a role in emotions and memory. Um, So because there's too much dopamine, you had disturbances of thought and perception. The mesocortical ones here, and all the way up through the cortex, Again, it originates in the ventral tegmental areas and goes up to the neocortex and the prefrontal cortex. So, two areas that are uh, important are the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. We'll talk more about this in a second. But it's related to cognition and executive function, whereas the ventromedial is more in emotion regulation. So, again, dorsals on top, ventrals on the bottom. Uh, the one on top is cognition and executive function, on the bottom is kind of emotional regulation. I think here there's uh, too little dopamine and that has related to the negative symptoms. So um, the role of motivation planning and temporal organization of behavior, all the negative symptoms, um, I like that because of the um, decrease in dopamine levels in these areas. So just to kind of review, uh, the positive symptoms are related to the mesolimbic pathway, the negative symptoms are related to them as a cortical pathway, the cognitive symptoms, dorsolateral prefrontal areas, uh, aggressive and it can of emotional symptoms, amygdala, and then the affective symptoms, ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Okay, so now we're gonna move on to disorders of mood, specifically depression. Um, there are lots of different kinds of depression. Uh, unipolar depression or major depression affects about 5% of the world's population. The average age of onset is 30. Women are two to three more times more likely than men to be diagnosed. That might just be because they're more likely to uh, seek treatment for it, um, but if you have one episode, about 70% will have more than one episode of major depression. Untreated, it lasts about four to 12 months. Um, kind of this is pervasive dysphoria, intense mental pain, inability to experience pleasure, and generalized loss of, of pleasure. Um, so other symptoms are disturbed sleep, usually insomnia, uh, diminished appetite, loss of energy, a decreased sex drive, restlessness, uh, slowing of thoughts and actions. Uh, Difficulty concentrating, feelings of worthlessness, and thoughts about dying and suicide. So kind of generalized kind of flat affect and down um, mood. There's also endogenous depression or melancholic depression. And 40 to 60% of people who are hospitalized for depression had this kind of depression. Um, Here there's no obvious precipitating event. Um, Mood is worse in the morning. Again, insomnia, anorexia, loss of appetite. Anhedonia, which is loss of interest and uh, lack of um, response to pleasurable stimuli. And then preoccupation with perceived deficiencies and inadequacies of your character. So it's a reactive depression or non-melancholic. This is caused by uh, precipitating events, so a stressor like the death of a family member or a job. This is where you're kind of tempor- temporarily overwhelmed and unable to cope. Um, these people usually have history of neurotic behavior. Two other kinds of depression, bipolar depression we're gonna talk more about next week, but just kind of give you overview. It affects men and women equally, usually um, occurs during the 20s. Um, the depressive episodes are just like the unipolar de- uh, depression, but we also have manic episodes. So you have elevated mood, We you're overactive, overtalkative, very impulsive. Um, you engage in reckless behavior, you don't need to sleep. You're just kind of very wired. Um, you have recurrent episodes that cycle very quickly. It can sometimes they cycles as quickly as within minutes to have a, um, a high and a low. Um, then there's also atypical depression. This is 15% of hospitalizations have this kind. So when you have regular or uh, unipolar depression, uh, you have low appetite, but this one you have high appetite. So you're overeating, you sleep more, whereas in unipolar you don't sleep. Um, and these symptoms are worse in the evening whereas the other one's worse in the morning. And then you have symptoms of anxiety as well, so that's why it's called atypical depression. So there are lots of neurotransmitters that are involved in depression. Again, dopamine, uh, it plays a role in your mood, so it's gonna gives you the creation of positive feelings or reward, it reinforces and, or motivates behavior. So if dopamine isn't working properly, then you have the opposite of that, loss of motivation, kind of feeling helpless and hopeless, loss of interest, low self-esteem, um, anger, irritability, and self-isolation they think are related to um, dopamine. Also norepinephrine is involved. This is again part of the fight-or-flight response. Uh, they think too little is, uh, too little norepinephrine is associated with depression, whereas too much is with mania. Um, they'll have cognitive dysfunction, anxiety, poor attention, brain fog dysphoria, fatigue, apathy, and kind of loss of alertness and arousal if this neurotransmitter is affected. Also serotonin, um, linked to mood and behavior. So they think that in general serotonin plays a role in biasing of emotional appraisal. So do you generally look at situations as positive or do you generally kind of look for the negative? That's related to your serotonin level. Um, They think it plays a role in your obsessions, compulsions, Um, Anhedonia, feeling unhappy, anger, frustration, and loss of pleasure. So um, we'll talk about treatments in a second, but one of the main treatments are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They keep serotonin in the synapse, so the little space between the neurons. Um, What's interesting about this is that whenever you take these drugs, the serotonin is, there is more serotonin in in the synapse kind of immediately. However, it takes weeks for these medications, just to start actually having effect in your behavior, so they think there's something else that these drugs are doing besides or in addition to, uh, or has a more long-range effect than just keeping more uh, serotonin in the in the synapse. Okay, so there are lots of brain areas that are um, affected in depression. There's this is kind of one network that's been uh, associated with it. Uh, it involves lateral lateral orbitofrontal insular regions and the lateral PFC. And this is associated with maladaptive emotional responses and dysfunction of reward learning. So some specific areas that are affected in depression are the amygdala. We've discussed the amygdala a few times before. Um, obviously it's part of the limbic system. It plays a role in emotions and fear. Um, they think that whenever you have elevated rested, uh, resting amygdala levels, and you have kind of more ruminations uh, and persistent thoughts. If you stimulate uh, the amygdala, then you'll have intrusive negative thoughts about Uh, memories. And so uh, they looked at the amygdala of people in depression and the amygdala does seem to be overactive in depressed individuals. Also broadens area 25, kind of here in the very end of the uh, frontal lobe. Um, This is overreactive in people who have treatment resistant depression. Um, This region of the brain is very high in serotonin transporters and it kind of governs the amygdala and the the, um, insula. So if this is overactive, then the amygdala is gonna be overactive, and then you're gonna have these negative effects of ruminations and intrusive negative thoughts. Speaking of the insula, it is right here, kind of tucked away. Um, it plays a role in empathy and compassion, self-awareness, interpersonal experiences, um, pain sensation as related to the insula, also your sense of agency, whether you can uh, take control of your own life and make um, actions and decisions for yourself, it plays a major role in disgust, um, but also other emotions like sadness, anger, and fear. It's also really important for your social experience. So if you identify kind of a norm violation, emotional processing, or making social decisions, it plays a role there. The left insula is um, the left insula activation is correlated with your emotional intelligence. Uh, Emotional intelligence, as you know, is uh, your ability to identify and regulate, process your emotions and someone else's emotions. So you can understand how they're doing and so you can interact better emotionally with other other people. So um, insular activation is correlated with um, EQ. Uh, The right insular volume is increased in people who meditate. So we want lots of insular activation. Another uh, part of the brain that plays a role in depression is the nucleus accumbens. Um, It plays a role in the reward network. Um, So whenever you see a pleasant stimulus, this part of the brain should light up. It plays a role in parental attachment. Um, If you look at something that is quote unquote cute, this part of the brain will light up as well. Um, So this area is underactive in people who have depression. They don't get the same rewards of looking at puppies as the rest of us do. Uh, Another part of the brain that uh, plays a role in depression is the anterior cingulate cortex. So it's right in front here. Um, So it has a lot of connections to the limbic system, amygdala, nucleus accumbens, hypothalamus. Um, And this role is to assess the salience of emotional and motivational information. Um, It's also associated with fear and sadness. Uh, Plays a role in effort and motivation. So it's it's gonna be what helps you start to initiate a difficult task. Um, so, if it, so you have a difficult task to do or just kind of getting up to fold your laundry, if you're depressed, you're not going to have the motivation to do that. And this is the part of the brain that is, plays a role there. Um, it's also important for air detection and conflict monitoring. Um, so, this part of the brain lights up when you do the Stroop task. Um, so, the Stroop task, as you know, you have um, words, color words that have different um, fonts. And so, you have to either name what the word says or what color the font is. So you kind of do this error detection and conflict monitoring or whether you're doing the right um, rule for that. Also social evaluation and appraising social situations, ruminations about social behavior, um, all part of this uh, brain region. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, um, which is again on top here, prefrontal cortex. um, It plays a role in executive functioning, working memory and cognitive flexibility, uh, planning, inhibition and abstract reasoning. So, for social functions, it plays a role in deception and lying. So, it has to inhibit your tendency to tell the truth whenever you want to lie. Um, it also plays a role in the Stroop test and conflicting rules. Um, theory of mind, so what I think about what you think. Um, and then suppression of selfish behavior. Uh, people who have a lot of trouble in relationships have, parts of, have a dysfunction of this part of the brain um, because they have probably dis- a decreased uh, gray matter volume. The ventromedial uh, prefrontal cortex, which is on the bottom here of the brain. As I said before, it has more kind of emotion regulation. Um, it regulates the amygdala, uh, inhibition of emotional responses, self-control, evaluation of morality. Um, the damage to this area, uh, if you have if damage this area, you had deficits in detecting irony, sarcasm. Uh, you're more likely to be influenced by misleading advertising. Uh, you've compassion, shame, and guilt. So some of the brain areas uh, that play a role, again, kind of pull it together. Um, this is uh, the healthy controls have more frontal activation than depressed. I'll see more kind of here. These are all the kind of networks and the connected regions that play a role in depression. So for the treatments for depression, we have antidepressant drugs, as I mentioned before. Uh, you have some serotonin reuptake inhibitors, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, tricyclic uh, medications. Uh, they all take weeks to start working, uh, one to three weeks to have any kind of symptom improvement, uh, up to a month or two before you have full relapse. And they work on the serotonin and noradrenaline, norepinephrine sy- sy- systems. Um, they work on the noradrenaline linked to the locus coeruleus, which is blue region right here. Again, they're not really sure how and why it works other than it does play a role in serotonin, um, but the fact that it keeps serotonin in the synapse immediately, but you don't see the results until a couple weeks later, means there's something else going on. Some other treatments, you have electroconvulsive uh, shock shock therapy. Um, So this is where they put you under, and then they induce a seizure, and they do it six to eight treatments at two-day intervals Uh, for two to four weeks, and it induces a seizure, and for whatever reason, they're not really sure the mechanism, but this tends to work. Um, Lithium is a medication for bipolar, so again, we'll talk more about this next week, Uh, but it helps to terminate manic episodes. Also, of course, psychotherapy is used. One interesting treatment for depression is RTMS, which is a magnetic stimulation of a certain part of the brain. R just means repeated, so instead of one magnetic, kind of they have lots of bursts. So the FDA FDA has approved an alpha burst of 10 hertz. Um, So what they'll do is they'll have fMRI guided and they'll put it over the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which again, we said it plays a role in executive functioning. Uh, You can also estimate the position that is F3 region. Um, This treatment has 20 to 30 sessions, uh, four seconds on, 26 seconds off, for 37 minutes, so it's kind of a lengthy treatment. A uh, problem with this is that patients frequently say that it's painful, a six out of 10 at first, that it gradually gets less painful. The remission rate here is about 50%, or uh, response rate is 50%, remission is about 30%, which is kind of equivalent to what you see with medications. There are some Canadian studies that are trying to reduce the treatment, so instead of 40-minute session, trying to do a protocol that's three minutes using theta bursts of four to eight hertz, at the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, uh, which is more kind of towards the inside. So the the location here is estimated 25% distance from the nasion to the inion, kind of up front. Uh, Again, dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, kind of self-regulation. They're also looking at the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is underneath. Um, It it has a lot of uh, connections with dysthymia and anhedonia um, symptoms. The problem, uh, because of its role in the reward circuitry. The problem is you can't get this with TMS because it's too deep in the brain. Um, So you have to do deep brain stimulation to actually uh, get this region. And of course we have neurofeedback, which is what we do here uh, at Integrated Brain Health. So as you all know, uh, neurofeedback is where we put uh, electrodes on the head and it sends information to a computer about what your brain is doing, the brain activity. And then the feedback is given uh, through game or movie effects. So it's based on operant conditioning where if your brain is doing what we want it to do, then the game is playing and the movie is playing. But if your brain is doing what we don't want it to do, then there's like some effect where the movie will stop, you'll have some negative effects or the game won't be as uh, effective. So the part of the brain that we kind of target for depression, you'll see here in the healthy individuals, you have all this prefrontal activation over here on the left side again. So with the RTMS, they said F3, which is left side. What we see here is with the, the chronically depressed patients, you have less frontal activation in the front left uh, relative to the normals. What we think is that the front left region is correlated to approach behaviors. So they think depression is linked to decreased approach behaviors, whereas anxiety, which is in the front right, is related to withdrawal behaviors, so it's more anxiety. So anxiety is linked to increased avoidance. So for depression, again, we're kind of over here on the the left side, kind of F3. Uh, For anxiety, which we'll talk about more next week, it's kind of over here on the right side, um, F4. There's also negative self-talk related to depression, this over here on the left, uh, related to your language processing areas okay so that was our first part of uh, talking about uh, disorders of affects and thought.
0: thank you for joining us today feel free to subscribe to the neuroscience rounds podcast for future episodes you might also enjoy our sister podcast let's head on with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at IntegrateBrainHealth.com.